evangelism, something we stuck here into, into BTI uh, a few years ago just because we want to uh, make this a part of uh, our thinking. And I hope this will be enlightening to you because we're not just going to talk about methods. Uh, we'll do that next week, but uh, methods have their own problems and have their own issues. And so we're not going to just make assumptions. We want to fly a little higher than that. Um, but I want to take just a moment and talk about the bigger picture of Bible Training Institute. Uh, it is my hope in the next year or so um, that we make some changes to BTI. Uh, we have noticed, and it's great. We love all of you. Uh, we've noticed that uh, fewer and fewer of you are actually doing this for credit and writing the papers, and that was not the intention. Um, it needs to be the other way around where more people do, are doing that and fewer people are auditing. I know everyone has different situations, so we're going to uh, maybe do some revamping, but that'll take some personnel to do that. In the meantime, we'll keep going uh, as is. Uh, now, the good part about the way we do it now is during the Sunday school hour, I can feel free to simply extend a session out to the next week, which I love that. So this is technically three sessions on evangelism. In three weeks, we'll find out whether we stuck to three sessions or not. I don't know at this point because there's a lot of material here and I don't want to rush through it. I don't feel any need to do so. What I'm going to do is basically I'm, I'm using a lot of notes I took in seminary. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying, it's a very godly and very lofty saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so I, I don't want to try to be original. I want to get the word out. We uh, recommended you read The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. I hope you've been able to do that. That's to get your thinking stimulated on the subject and, and to support what I'm going to talk about. So here's kind of my plan, and whether we do this in three weeks or not, I don't know. Session number one we'll do today, I want to talk about getting the gospel right, because that's the, that's the foundation. Session number two, next time we'll talk about the pros and cons of evangelism methods. I'll, I'll teach you two methods, and then we'll go through the pros and cons of them. And then session three, um, I want to talk about starting the conversation and just give you some ideas um, for evangelism. So today we're just going to do getting the gospel right, just kind of an introductory talk through this. And we may even, if we have time, we may even have a little discussion time as well. Not sure if we'll get to that. I want to read you a great quote by an evangelist named uh, Vance Havner. And he was preaching at the Bible, uh, Moody Bible Institute's Founders Week in the early 70s. And he said this, quote, Evangelism is to Christianity what veins are to our bodies. You can cut Christianity anywhere and it'll bleed evangelism. Evangelism is vascular. It's our business. Talk about majoring on evangelism. You might as well talk about a doctor majoring on healing. Evangelism is our business. And I think that's a great way to, to think and to go. Let me just start off with some key concepts to, to start here. And again, we're going to fly high and then we'll get more into particulars as we go in the next few weeks. Some believers are more gifted in the area of evangelism than others. That's just a fact, and it's something that we've enjoyed. There is an argument to be made for a spiritual gift of evangelism. Uh, I, I'm not concerned where anybody falls in that argument. Observation has shown us that this is the case. So on the one hand, that doesn't exempt the rest of us. We don't say, well, because there are a few gifted people in evangelism, I can just sit back and not do my part. On the other hand... My observation has been that those gifted in evangelism tend to think everyone else should be just like them. 
And, and so we want to be aware of that. Uh, everyone who is gifted in teaching the Bible shouldn't expect that everyone else is gifted in teaching the Bible as well. There are some people with just a predisposition and a, a real drive um, for personal evangelism. Another key concept, there is not a perfect method. And I really want to be aware of defending to the death any systematized approaches. And we'll look at a couple of them next week. And they're not bad, but they're not, uh, they're not canonized. They're not equal to Scripture. They are simply methods. They are simply ideas. Uh, there is not the way to evangelize. That does not exist. We'll talk about one of the methods you're probably familiar with called the way of the master. The way of the master is based on Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. Um, putting him under the law and having the rich young ruler uh, uh, compare his life to the law. That is not the way of the master. That is a way of the master. You know how many times we have Jesus recorded you using that method? Once with the rich young ruler. And it's a, it's a tremendous thought, but it is not the way. It is a way. Another way to think about this under the category of this not being a, there not being a perfect method God made every one of you differently and so what's the best way for you to evangelize the best way for you to evangelize is the best way for you to evangelize however God made you some of you not very many but some of you are comfortable uh, going to a street corner and starting to shout the gospel to anybody who will listen you know how many church members in my ministry I've seen come as a result of that method? Zero in 25 years. I don't think that's effective. But is it glorifying to God? Absolutely. Anytime you speak the gospel aloud, that's glorifying to God. I have a, I have a friend who's a pastor and his thing is street evangelism. He loves doing that and he loves street preaching and he goes, he lives in a city with a major league baseball team and so he goes and stands in the parking lot on game days and stands on a little box and starts preaching the gospel. And I was in a lecture with him once, and somebody asked the question, well, how many of them have you led to Christ? And he said, every single one of them. I lead every one of them to the cross. I lead every one of them to Christ. And what God does with that in terms of salvation is his business. You understand that? He doesn't take responsibility for regeneration. He just wants to proclaim the gospel, and that's, that's his thing. But God made you differently. And so, how do you think about evangelism? What's the most exciting way to share the gospel that you have? That's probably how God made you. And that's where you'll be the most effective anyway. Another key concept. Your motivation should never be guilt. It should be a love for Christ, a desire to glorify God, and a love for the lost. Let me just hit those three little subpoints. It should be a love for Christ. Why, why does evangelism connect to love for Christ? What has Christ done for you, and why would you not love him by asking others to share in that love? A desire to glorify God. You speaking the gospel to another person gives glory to God. The results are up to him, but it does give glory to God. And the last one, a love for the lost. I think it's so important that we remember that the lost are not our enemy. They're the mission field. Um, and and we're, we're not here to judge the world. The Apostle Paul even said that. That's, that's God's job. We judge within the church. Somebody says, I'm a brother in Christ, but I'm going to live a gay lifestyle. No, then we judge that and we deal with that within the walls of the church. But we need to love the lost. 
We don't love them to the point of living a compromised life so that we can quote unquote relate to them. But we love them because we see that their trajectory is headed toward hell. But motivation should never be, uh, the motivation should never be guilt. There's an acronym that I learned uh, years ago. The acronym is PEG. And it's the three topics of sermons that pastors supposedly hate to preach. Prayer, evangelism, and giving. That those are the ones we're tempted to use guilt. And I refuse to do that. I, I, I don't want you giving because I made you feel guilty. I don't want you evangelizing because I made you feel guilty. And we sure don't want you praying because you felt guilty. You know what happens? If you can picture, I know I have no audiovisual helps up here, but if you can picture um, a, a graph and here's this axis and here's this axis, um, at the beginning of the, the axis is a really guilt-laden sermon on, say, prayer. And so what happens is there's a jump in prayer in the congregation, but because it was based in guilt, it goes back down to where it was before. What do you preach instead? You preach Christ and Him crucified and that you get to speak to your Heavenly Father and you see a spike in prayer that then continues because it's based in the proper motivation. And we don't want to do that for evangelism either. So motivation should never be the guilt. Never be guilt. Another kind of a key concept. Our goal is not to coerce a decision. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to proclaim the gospel. You can't coerce a decision. Um, When I was in seminary, I was involved with a ministry that uh, I I went as a guest speaker to this retreat, and they had a uh, they had a whole children's program for uh, for the children, which I had no control over. And we had some of our kids go there, and uh, we had every child in the children's program got saved. Right, and so. I, after I took a deep breath and asked the Lord for patience and to choose my words carefully, I then went back with those who led and I said, how did you do that? Well, they used peer pressure. They told the story about Jesus and said, if you want Jesus to love you, raise your hand. And they raised their hands. Who doesn't want Jesus to love them when you're seven? And then they said, if you've raised your hand, you should come forward and you should pray. And then they fed them a sinner's prayer. And then they proclaimed to all the adults that all the children got saved that day. Small problem. I knew some of those children and they told me I didn't mean it because they were coerced. And so you can't coerce a decision. That's, you notice we don't do an altar call. We do give people an opportunity to speak to our members, to speak to counselors, but that's not coercing a decision. That's giving an opportunity to respond and there's a big difference. So you don't coerce a decision. You may share the gospel with a thousand people in your lifetime and never see one decision. That's not our business. Our business is the gospel. And so the great thing about that is you can control that. You can control that. When I was, uh, when I was pastoring in Texas, I had some pastor friends and, and the, the Southern Baptist Church in Central Texas is like its own religion. Like it's not a Christian religion, but just its own little religion. And I knew pastors with churches with 40 people and they would say, yep, yeah, I've baptized 700 new believers in the last 10 years. Where are they? Where are they? There's false conversions and a lot of wasted water is all that is. That was just a, a coercion of decision to somehow keep score. And that makes no sense. 
There's basically two key issues with evangelism, still under key concepts. The two key issues are getting the message right, and then what are your opportunities to proclaim the, the message. And so uh, I want to spend our time today on getting the message right, and then we'll look at opportunities in the next couple of weeks. One more key concept, the organic versus organized ideas of uh, evangelism. And what do I mean by this? The organic type of evangelism says the church of Jesus Christ is just naturally outflowing uh, the gospel and that that should be the, that should be the model. Uh, the church of Thessalonica is a great example. They were 100% organic that we know of and, and they were the evangelizing church except for the church of Philadelphia. The other side, the organized model. Well, you should have evangelism groups. You should have programs. You should have a, a basketball ministry. You should have uh, giveaways. You should have all kinds of methods to reach the community. Um, so which one do we do? I think it's e- easiest to say we do both. It's both and. The organic method, the evangelism is a natural result of your growth in the faith, your love for the Lord, your love for the gospel, your deep concern for your family and friends. What does that grow out of? That grows out of you hearing the gospel, singing the gospel, gathering together with gospel-saved people every week, and it grows naturally out of that. On the other hand, the organized method, being a part of a group or an organized uh, effort through the local church. Uh, Again, basketball ministries or outreach ministries of of some sort. So you don't have to choose between them. They're both good. Um, I'll give you a little hint, though. Which one has the Lord used over 2,000 years to grow the church? It is organic. I have never heard of a, of a revival because of a, of a basketball ministry. Praise God, the gospel is being preached and people are hearing the message of Christ. But generally speaking, through the, through the uh, history of the church, go all the way back to Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, how has Christ grown his kingdom. It has been by believers hearing the gospel, going to their family and friends and saying, come with me and hear what I'm hearing. It is, and this is going to sound really Baptist, but the gospel has been spread for 2,000 years by inviting your friends and family to church. That has been God's method. That's very organic. So uh, when, when somebody says, well, you must not really be all about evangelism because you don't have all these programs. We're all about evangelism because we do what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to do the work of an evangelist, which means when you preach the gospel, preach the gospel, the biblical gospel, and pierce people's hearts with the doctrines of grace, with the doctrine of regeneration and justification and sanctification. So which one is it? It's both. And we need to be as, as diligent as we can in both. So let's talk about some wrong ways to proclaim the gospel. And I, I know I'm probably speaking to the choir here um, for the most part. But let me just give you a few wrong ways. A seeker-friendly false gospel. And I put the word false in there because there's no such thing as a seeker-friendly gospel. A seeker-friendly gospel is by its nature a false gospel. What is this? That God cares first about how you raise your children, 
about how good your marriage is, about your depression, your guilt, what you went through as a child, how to manage your money, how to be happy. And then eventually God wants to have a conversation with you about Jesus. That let me teach you how to live a pseudo-Christian lifestyle and ease your way to the cross. That is exactly backwards, isn't it? What that is doing is trying to sanctify unbelievers to the point that they want to come to faith in Christ. That is the entire seeker-friendly method. Let me give it to you in a nutshell. The seeker-friendly method, which now, unfortunately, is just called American evangelicalism, basically says, let's make people happy. Let's entertain them. Let's have all kinds of ways to make unbelievers feel very, very comfortable in the church. We'll teach them about how to have a good marriage, and we'll teach them about how to raise their kids. We'll, we'll have financial classes for them to teach them how to manage their money. Um, we're going to show them that the fellowship of people together um, that they call the church, but if they're not believers, it's not the church. We'll show them how wonderful that is, and eventually, then what we're going to do is then really teach them in depth. We're going to go through the book of Romans, and we're going to go through Ephesians, and we'll teach them. The problem is they never get to step two. You want to know why? Because you use all those methods, you start gathering people, your, uh, your bank account starts swelling, and who wants to mess with that sort of success? Never in the history of the seeker-friendly movement over the past 50 years has a pastor stood up and said, over the past five years, we've been attracting all of you by backpack giveaways, by teaching you classes on how to live with your spouse in an understanding manner, how to raise your kids, how to do money management, how to be happy, how to get over your guilt, how to get over your depression, how to deal with your rotten parents, how to deal with your rotten kids. We've taught you all of that. Starting today, turn to Romans 1, Paul, an apostle, and let's start teaching through this. That has never happened. The only time I ever know that that's happened is when a church loses its pastor and the new one comes in and starts preaching the word. You know what usually happens then? The church empties, they blow down from 2,000 to 200, and then you have the real church. So what is seeker-friendly false gospel? A seeker-friendly false gospel is you telling your family and friends that Jesus wants to make you happy. Now, what's wrong with that at the outset? There are some unbelievers that are pretty happy. What does happy have to do with? It has to do with your circumstances, right? With what is happening. When you tell an unbeliever, uh, look, if you come to Jesus, he's going to really, you know, he's really going to bless your life. The unbeliever says, I got $9 million in the bank. I feel pretty blessed right now. Well, he's going to really help you be happy. I can't remember being sad. Well, he's going to help your, he's going to help your family. I have a wife and four kids who love me. What, what kind of help do you need? You see, you're appealing to the wrong problem. Actually, what you're doing is you're appealing to lust, that Jesus will give you what you want. That's a false gospel, whether you're talking to somebody who is in this world happy or in this world unhappy. It also promises what God doesn't. A seeker-friendly false gospel promises money, promises success, promises fame, freedom from conflict, that that Jesus exists to solve all your problems. And and I'm hammering this home because what I'm describing is basically most of American evangelicalism today. That is what they view the gospel as. Jesus is here to be my co-pilot, to be my helper. And that's not the case. Years ago, there was a common phrase, and it's still out there now, to just try Jesus. Try Jesus. That's like saying, try skydiving without a parachute. See what happens. 
You can't try Jesus. First of all, that denies the doctrine of regeneration completely. Try being regenerate for a while. If it doesn't work for you, then, then go back. Do you notice what this appeals to? It appeals to personal, uh, personal lust. Try and see if Jesus will fulfill your expectations. And if he doesn't, then you don't have to be a Christian. What is that? That is an appeal to lust. It is an appeal uh, with a false gospel and it denigrates Jesus. How about try Jesus because he's going to be your judge and he's going to throw you into hell and if you don't try him for all your life, then you're going to hell. That's the real message. Or how about this message? Why should Jesus try you? Why should he try you? What do you have to offer? Why should he bother with you? Why should he give you one moment's notice? Well, the answer is because he's gracious. You have nothing you're bringing to the table. He brings everything to the table. So you can't say try Jesus. The seeker-friendly gospel says this. If we can get them to do the actions, then their heart will follow. If we can get them to go to church, their heart will follow. Yes, invite your unsaved uh, friends to church, but not so they can pretend to be Christians, so so they can hear the gospel. If we can get them to do the actions, their heart will follow. So, We want to beware of a false gospel. You have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth. And people get offended by the truth, don't they? The gospel divides. The gospel is divisive. How hard is it to tell a family member, I love you, but we're going to be separated for all eternity because I'm going to be in heaven and you will be in hell. Well, I'm not coming to Thanksgiving. Great. You're still going to hell whether you come to Thanksgiving or not. So, no seeker-friendly false gospels. Don't push for a decision. All of you know the answer to this, but how many examples of a sinner's prayer are there in the Bible? Zero. That's right. That is an invention of man to count heads, to lead people in a prayer. Now, does that mean, does that, mean that, uh, that somebody coming to faith in Christ doesn't pray and maybe you don't pray with them uh, or that you pray with them? Of course. That's wonderful. I mean, if you, if you come to God by faith, what's the first thing instinctively you would like to do? You would like to speak to him. But you don't pray to receive Christ. You pray because you received Christ. Does that make sense? Because by the time you're praying and asking God to forgive your sins, your heart has already changed. You've been regenerated. You're just saying the words at this point. So the danger of leading somebody in words is that it has nothing to do with their heart. The true uh, the true wrong idea of a sinner's prayer basically says by praying this prayer you are now a christian what is that that's works-based salvation isn't it now i have sat with somebody who heard a sermon and he said i've been convicted to my the, the to my socks i have this list of things that i believe i'm doing to please god and i've come to realize that that list is zero that nothing i've done can please god and he actually asked Can I pray? Well, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. And this man prayed a doctrinally perfect prayer after never having heard the doctrines of grace. You want to know why? Because the Spirit of God worked in him. And he said, thank you, Lord, for showing me my own sin. Thank you for showing me that I bring nothing to the table and you bring everything. Thank you for giving me your your kindness. He didn't know the word grace yet. Thank you for giving me your kindness and for for being so wonderful to me. Thank you for, for saving me from my sin. And he prayed this doctrinally rich prayer because the Spirit of God had changed his heart. And nobody had to tell him how to pray that. 
So we don't lead people in the sinner's prayer. Can I put it this way? You don't have to close the deal. That's not your job. That is God's job. I, I won't ask you to do this, but some of you, if I asked, would raise your hand if I said, do you know the moment you got saved? Some of you would raise your hand. Now let me ask the other question. How many of you are uncertain of the actual moment you got saved? I'm in that category. That's right. If we're being honest and we're being biblical, I would say every single person needs to raise their hand at that question. How do you know the moment you were regenerated? I don't think you know that exact moment. Um, you know there's a, there's, a, there's a broad timeline. I was regenerated sometime between the age of 8 and 17. That's all I know. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I hope it's closer to 8. That would make me feel better. But given the sinful lifestyle I lived as a kid, it's, it's uncertain. So you don't have to close the deal. You don't have to lead somebody in a prayer and then say, okay, now you're a Christian. You know how many people I've ever told, now you're a Christian? Zero. I can't tell them that. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, you baptize people. They're saying, no, they're saying they're Christians. I'm not saying it. I'm saying their testimony is credible. I'm saying I've seen fruit in their life. I'm saying uh, that, for example, for a teenager, parents have seen fruit in their life. They're making the decision to publicly proclaim themselves as being in Christ. But we give them a warning. And the warning is, once you proclaim that you're in Christ, you now can incur the discipline of Christ and of the church because you're making that proclamation. How can I tell somebody uh, is a Christian? I don't know. I look at some of you and you've lived a faithful life for 50 years. I have a pretty good idea. But never do you or I assure somebody of their salvation. I would like for you to find one example in the New Testament of a human being assuring another of his salvation. I don't, I don't find one. Assurance of salvation comes from the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. It comes from you bearing fruit. It comes from what you believe. It comes from the evidence of your your salvation externally, all kinds of things. But it doesn't come from somebody else. And so we would just want to be aware of that. A wrong way to proclaim the gospel is being obnoxious. Being obnoxious in a way that turns people off. Now, does the gospel offend? Absolutely. Should you be offensive? No. So is there a difference between being obnoxious and being truthful. You can say the same words and have be a difference. Which one is this? You're going to hell. That's obnoxious. Loving is saying, if you don't receive Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that you will be in the lake of fire. That's not me. That's God saying that. Do you see the difference? It's not a personal attack. It's a plea. It's, it's begging. It's asking them to consider the gospel. So we don't want to be obnoxious. How about this one? Not proclaiming the gospel at all. What I'm hoping is that the end result of these three weeks will be that you have a personal plan for proclaiming the gospel to others. And I would say that a personal plan includes and may be exclusively prayer. We have some older saints in our church who will get here in in a few minutes and it's all they can do to just function. So what do they do? They pray and they pray for the lost. And I have one saint in this church who says, I pray for your gospel presentation every Sunday morning before church. I'll take that all day. That's a personal plan for evangelism. 
But what do I mean by not proclaiming the gospel at all? Have you ever heard somebody talk about Jesus a lot? Oh, Jesus has done so much in my life and I just love Jesus and Jesus has done this and that without actually saying, Jesus is my savior and here's why. And so that's not evangelism. Talking about Jesus all the time is not evangelism. In fact, in our culture today, it's kind of offensive, isn't it? Nobody wants to hear about Jesus. So if you're gonna open your mouth and talk about Jesus, you better get the gospel out before they go talk to the hand. I don't wanna hear it. One more, and this is the big one. And that is not factoring in discipleship whenever possible. Discipleship is a huge part of evangelism. This is how the early church evangelized. There are very few examples in the, in the early church of one-shot uh, evangelism without discipleship. And that sometimes it's necessary if you're in line at Starbucks or you're on an airplane with someone and you have a, you have a chance to evangelize, that's your shot. And we understand that. Acts chapter 8, we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. That's, that was Philip's shot. And, and he, what did he do? He, he gave him the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch got saved and got baptized right then and there because they probably never saw each other again. But that's the exception. That's not the norm. I think it's a mistake to not factor in discipleship. What do I mean by this? Yes, you can get in line at Starbucks or you can stand outside and hand out tracts and that's great and that's glorifying to God because the gospel is going forth. The truth is being proclaimed. But what's much more effective and what is the biblical model, particularly from the early church, is relational evangelism. Having a relationship with someone where instead of taking five minutes to say, let me tell you about Jesus and what he did at the cross. Getting to a point with someone where you can say, hey, it seems like you're interested in talking about God. How about we get together once a week for breakfast for the next couple of months and let's talk about God together. That's discipleship evangelism. That's much more uh, useful, much more uh, uh, helpful. You can disciple an unbeliever. I have a friend uh, who worked for years in the corporate world. He's a pastor now, but he worked for years in the corporate world. And he took a study from uh, the Navigators called Colossians 2.7 study. That used to be a really great study. They've kind of watered it down now, so I don't recommend it anymore. But at the time, it was a great uh, basic discipleship. And he would gather unbelievers and once a week buy their lunch, used his own paycheck, buy their lunch, and take them through Colossians 2.7. And... One by one, these guys would start showing up at church because they were getting saved. But he did that by spending time with these guys and discipling them and just having them. Uh, he would bring a stack of Bibles because none of them owned Bibles. And he would say, do you want me to bring it or do you want to, do you want to uh, uh, carry it and bring it yourself? And at first, all of them would say, uh, yeah, you bring it. I don't want to be responsible. Over the course of time, these guys would say, hey, can I take my Bible home this week? It's like they were children. That's discipleship evangelism. That's, that's making an impact, not just getting on an airplane and obnoxiously saying, hey, if this plane crashed in an hour, would you know Jesus? Don't tell somebody that. That's not helpful. So those are some wrong ways to proclaim the gospel. And um, I think I've probably done all of them at one time or another. And so there's no blame to be given here. I, we just want to be aware of that. What's the most important thing about proclaiming the gospel? It is getting the gospel right. And so I want to talk about that if my clicker works. Oh, there we go. So let's talk about getting the gospel right. 
First of all, what is, what is biblical evangelism? It is biblical if it is God-centered. It has to be God-centered. Where does this start? The God-centered message proclaims God's holiness. That's where we start. You don't start with, hey, do you want Jesus to help you manage your money better? That's irrelevant. The gospel starts with God's holiness. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That he is in the light and humanity is in the darkness. The God-centered message details man's sinful condition. That all sin is against God. Psalm 51 is a great example of this. Every sinner is in rebellion against God, no matter how moral you are, no matter how kind you are, no matter if you pay your bills and your taxes on time, no matter how externally loving you might be, unbelievers are hopelessly lost in their sin. They're in a legal bind with God because all we do is tainted with sin. We can't save ourselves from its eternal consequences any more than criminals determine their penalty. No criminal stands before a judge and says, judge, I I, I think you should really be lenient with me. And the judge says, okay, works for me. That doesn't happen. And I put some scripture references up there for you as well. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6, the most familiar one, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, that there's nothing you can do to please God. In fact, you make God even more angry when you think you're doing good things for him. Third part of biblical evangelism being God-centered. The God-centered message declares Christ as Savior and Lord. As Savior, Christ lived a sin a sinless human life. He paid the penalty of sin on the cross. He conquered sin. He conquered death by his resurrection. And as Lord, he's ruler over everything. He's ruler over every aspect of life, every dynamic of creation. His rule as Lord can't be separated from his role as Savior. In fact, this is a good diagnostic question when somebody says, I think I want to be a Christian. Do you understand that that means you will become a servant of Christ and he commands everything and you command nothing? That's a good litmus test. Fourth part of biblical evangelism being God-centered. The God-centered message calls sinners to repent and trust Christ. It's not enough to explain to the sinner what Christ has done to pay for sin. That's not enough. You also call the sinner to a response to that message. When somebody says in response to you saying Christ has paid for your sins on the cross and he says that's interesting. You just say "Just just so we're clear Believing that that's an interesting story does not make you a Christian. It doesn't. The unbeliever must turn from his own sin, from his efforts to be accepted by God and his own merits. He has to trust Christ alone to provide the righteousness that brings fellowship with God. And I, I think the, the litmus test, not that we're the ones giving the test, but, but that somebody can test themselves, is what's your desperation level? What is your level of horror at your own sin? What is your level at, uh, of understanding how you've been offending God? Um, they're, they're not able to come anymore uh, due to some other situations, but for a number of years we had a, a lady in our church who was saved out of uh, being a Jehovah's Witness. And I got to watch this transformation because she was still going through, uh, you know, I, I, I know Jesus is great, but I don't believe he's God. And we went through Hebrews 1, Five, six, seven, and eight, and Hebrews one eight, where it says uh, God speaking to Jesus and calling Jesus God, and that was an eye-opening moment. She came back the next week and she said, 
I have been offending my God, Jesus, all these years because I have not acknowledged who he truly is. And there was a brokenness and a, a desperation to be right with the Lord. If somebody says, yeah, I, I, think I'll, I think I'll try the Christian thing, that's not repentance. Not your job to judge, but it is your job to, to maybe examine fruit. So it calls sinners to repent and there, there, there should be a desperation. There should be a, a, a sense of, of offense. If you're in a close relationship with another, a spouse or a child and, and you're in Christ, when you know you've offended that person, isn't there a desperation in your heart to make that right? Isn't there a desperation in your heart to find that person, to seek him out? Well, that's what the truly repentant new believer is, is there's a desperation to seek God. And then finally, the God-centered message proclaims God himself as the great end and the goal of the gospel. God is the goal of the gospel, not my salvation. My salvation is secondary. The greatest news of the gospel isn't just that we're saved from the torments of hell, and it's not that we're going to be reunited with our loved ones someday, and it's not even that one day we'll be free from suffering. That's not the greatest news of the gospel. Those things are all true, they're all glorious, but they're not ultimate The greatest benefit to the gospel is that we enjoy once again what was lost by our fall into sin and that is unhindered fellowship with God. God becomes the goal of the gospel. We were created to know him, we were created to worship him and the gospel puts us into that uh, ability to do that. And so when you proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, You need to present God himself as the glorious one, the holy one, the mighty one, and the greatest benefit to being saved is that you'll be in relationship with him and in fellowship with him. And somebody says, well, I don't want to be in fellowship with him. Then you can't be a Christian. Jesus said that he didn't come to forgive the, the, well, how do they put it? He said that uh, that the, the, those who are well don't need the physician, but those who are sick. What did he mean? Those who are self-righteous who think they don't need forgiveness can't be forgiven. You can't be forgiven if you don't think you need forgiveness. And so we present God as the goal of the gospel. I think we can get done. Biblical evangelism is driven by theology. A lot of the discussion around evangelism has to do with method. That's historic. That's currently Uh, happening that centers around uh, repackaging the gospel to the lowest common denominator. Can we get the gospel on something the size of a sticky note to make it understandable and palatable? Or maybe let's let's, uh, appeal to certain subcultures of unbelievers. But methodology is not the issue. Theology is the issue. You can get the methodology down without getting the theology down why do you have to why do you have to go through a two-year-long class on how to evangelize my theory is is that people who go through a two-year-long class on how to evangelize don't know the gospel the best way to evangelize is to know the gospel so it's about theology god-centered evangelism is not method driven it's theology driven our theology is the driving force behind any so-called method We understand the depravity of man. We understand that God is sovereign over salvation. We understand that that God's work of salvation is monergistic, a single work of regenerating grace. We understand that, that repackaging the gospel to make it more attractive to the spiritually dead never works. 1 Corinthians 2.14 
says that the, that the lost, the unspiritual, cannot understand spiritual things. So you can't repackage the gospel to somehow make it more understandable. Did you, you, you understand that? You can't make it understandable. The gospel is the gospel. Only the spirit brings somebody to the point of understanding. What's the unbeliever's problem? Their problem is a blind mind. And so, let me put it this way, and I'm going to use an illustration that I think is obvious, and I hope this isn't offensive to anyone, but somebody who is physically blind, and you're trying to get them to read something, holding up something with giant letters isn't going to help them read it any better. They're still blind. Does that make sense? You have to fix the blindness. And only God fixes the spiritual blindness so that when you're holding up the word of God and their eyes are opened, they see it. And so our method-driven idea is making the letters bigger so that the blind person might be able to read it. No, theology-driven is that you need to repent of your sin. Your eyes need to be opened by the grace of God. And so since the unbeliever's problem is a blind mind, we should limit ourselves to only doing that which solves that problem. The only thing that opens blind minds is the gospel message. 2 Corinthians 4 is very clear on that. So our goal is not to reduce the gospel to a minimum of what has to be communicated and believed. Our goal is to explain the person of God, to explain the sinfulness of man, to explain the work of Christ and do it with detail and and with clarity. I heard one guy say this, and I think this really encapsulates everything we're trying to say right now. Biblical evangelism is content rich. It's content rich. And so you're not just narrowing the gospel down to something very simple. You have a simplistic gospel. You have a simplistic uh, person who goes to church, not necessarily a Christian. Now, is it possible in 30 seconds before a plane crash to say, Jesus wants to save you from your sins. You need to repent. And somebody yells out, God, I'm sorry for my sins. Crash. And they go to heaven. Absolutely, that's possible. We have an example in scripture, don't we? The thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was it. That's all the time he had. And Jesus promised to save him. Generally speaking, though, if you have the time, you need to present, uh, present the gospel with content richness. And one last little point here. Biblical evangelism is discipleship oriented. I've already hit this, but I'm going to hit it again. The goal of evangelism is not to engineer decisions. It is to make disciples. One of, one of my prayers is that, and there's, there's one or two of you that have done this, but one of my prayers is that some of you would decide to open your home to a, a, an evangelistic Bible study. To where you just decide to start inviting some unbelievers and grab, grab a, a believer or two from the church to give you a little support and just start saying, let's, let's walk through the biography of Jesus Christ. Really, I didn't know Jesus had a biography. Yeah, it's in the Bible. There's four of them. It's really cool. Let's do, let's do the biography named John and just start walking through it. That's discipleship evangelism. Serve cookies, make it fun, whatever you have to do, but begin to get the truth out there. It's been said repeatedly that Christ didn't commission the church to make converts. He commissioned us to make what? Disciples. They're described as followers of Jesus, learners of Jesus, and those who observe all that he's commanded. That's the great commission. Matthew 28. 
Biblical evangelism emphasizes the faithful following of Christ for a lifetime, way above an on-the-spot response. It teaches the unbeliever how to count the cost of following Christ. Have you ever included that in in your evangelistic presentation? Uh, Before you become a Christian, let me let you know something. Jesus will claim to be your Lord. You will give up everything that you hold dear. If it's righteous, you can keep it. If it's unrighteous, he will ask you to give it up. If you're living with your girlfriend, you need to leave. You need to marry her. You need to do something. If you're gambling uh, money away that's your family's, you need to stop right now. Here's what it's going to cost you. You count the cost. Now, you also need to count the cost that if you decide to keep those things, the cost will be your eternal soul. So you you present the gospel to the unbeliever as this is going to cost you one way or another. Which cost do you want to pay? The emphasis is not on procuring the the sinner's prayer, not raising a hand, not coming forward, not checking the card, any of that. The emphasis is on making fully equipped disciples of Christ and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded in submission to his lordship. Uh, By the way, how do you you know somebody's come to faith in Christ? Not that we know for sure, but generally the way I have a pretty good idea is that they're faithful in the church, they're growing, they love the Lord, and they're off to the races for a lifetime. They don't fall away. What did the Apostle John say? That those who left the church, they they left us because they never were of us in the first place. One more thought. I said one more a minute ago, but I looked at the wrong page. It takes hard work to be clear and understandable with the gospel message. It does take work. It may take you a few minutes, may take you an hour, may take weeks, it may take years. I know some of you have been sharing the gospel in pieces and chunks with people you love for years. And you're praying for their souls. So at times, maybe all you're, you're able to do is move somebody along in the road to Christ of building the foundation for the next gospel installment. So we don't want to reduce the gospel down to the smallest amount of information. I want to encourage you, um, and we're in between having these right now, so you're going to have to do this on your own, and I apologize for that. That's my fault. Um, But I want to encourage you to think about finding a way to pray for your family members and and getting a hold of a gospel tract. One of the reasons we don't have them really many anymore is because you can just go online and Google gospel tract and print them out. So we don't have to have a bunch of them printed. But um, I want you to just think through how am I going to do this? And just think that through. Next time we're going to get into um, a little more of the idea of methods. We'll do the pros and cons of evangelism methods just for, just for fun. I apologize that we didn't have time for discussion. We'll try to make time for that. In fact, I'll make a note of that uh, next time. So why don't we pray and then we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Father, for this time that we have together. I, I pray that, um, I know even in my own heart, Lord, I, I have been, reinvigorated to remember that uh, although I'm the the pastor at Grace Bible Church I have neighbors and I have people who need to hear the gospel and I, I want to be faithful and I pray for each of us here Lord that in whatever small way we can we would be faithful to see the lost around us and to love them enough to give them the greatest gift and that is the good news of Christ thank you for this time we've had I, I really pray that it's been useful and I pray that it would be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We'll see you in just a few minutes. You're dismissed.